Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Today I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Shahir Azam Joya, a CT2 uh, working in Glasgow. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much, Frank, for uh, having me. And uh, yeah, excited to uh, have a little chat and uh, excited for your fun, uh, podcast. Tell us a little bit about okay. yourself and, and uh, your career so far. Yeah, so um, I am in the second year of my core surgical training Um and yeah, as you mentioned in Glasgow, and then previous to that, I was in um, in the southwest uh, in England for foundation years. Um, so I am kind of in what I would call like a a middle stage uh, of uh, a surgical career. Um, so after foundation years, or maybe some people take an extra year out, uh, you can apply for training and most people apply for the stage that I'm at, which is core surgical training. And, uh, some people might be in a position where they have run through training. Others may have to apply for ST3 again. Um, I have to apply for ST3 again. And, uh, that's sort of at the top of my mind at the moment. But uh, otherwise, it's uh, it's okay. It's had some challenges, but um, I guess uh, we've all had challenges in the last year or two. And it's it's kind of about now looking back, reflecting on all of this, and uh, trying to go forwards in the best way that you can. I think a lot of our listeners will know about applying for core surgical training and that it's, it's really competitive, but you've actually got another application just around the corner now into your sort of higher surgical training. How's that going? Yeah, so it's challenging. What I feel is would have helped me is if I had sort of started very, very early and I could define what I mean by that is probably the last years of medical school. And some people do do that. And uh, I'm sure they will probably do exceptionally well. What, what, what advice I would give is that um, since you have two applications to worry about, not just the one, um, and you know, arguably three with foundation years, um, I would say that uh, do things in a way where they can help you uh, score points in <laughs> as many of the applications as possible, if that is what you're interested in. Um, and uh, try and do them early and that will give you more time to, well, one, learn on the job. Uh, there's lots of elements of things that you need to learn. Um, two, do other projects that might come up. And three, uh, things like membership exams, which I'm having a little bit of difficulty with at the moment, um, they, they, they will probably uh, be easier to get out of the way or you can get them out of the way quicker. Um, so, so yeah, I think that would be my best uh, piece of advice it's, it's interesting to talk to you today because I, I've talked to a, a few consultants and, and when we speak about surgical training, I, I sometimes wonder whether they have maybe like rose-tinted glasses on, whereas you're you know right in the middle of that now. I've heard they're sort of renowned for being really tough years of your life. So how have you found it so far? Yeah, so surgical training can definitely be quite tough. And I think it's really, really difficult to appreciate how variable how tough it can be until you're actually in that situation. 
What I would say is um, our people that get to the stage have, have, you know, went through very uh, varying degrees of uh, difficulty, whether it be university exams, applications for other things, uh, interests that they have competing on a, uh, you know, high level in sports. Um, it, there's, there's, there's variable things. But what I would say is carry on some of that, that experience and um, don't tell yourself that everything is finished. Uh, you may have to be competitive uh, for quite a bit longer in your career. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is that you mentioned consultants uh, um, helping and uh, uh, letting people know how their experiences were. It's very important to kind of understand how uh, recently uh, these senior mentors or even colleagues uh, have been on this uh, training pathway because I think it's transition has changed quite a lot. A couple of things have happened. So depending on what consultant you ask, some may have been around when there was no European work time directive and, uh, you know, arguably they did a lot more hours, but uh, they might have worked in a team-based system where they're attached to a uh, consultant or they're attached to a team and they look after that team, their patients, and then when that team is on call, they look after all the patients that uh, are taken in by that team. Um, that might then go to people that are working under the European Work Time Directive, uh, also again in a team-based system, so you know slightly better, maybe the best of both worlds. Um, and you know, underpinning all of this might be uh, more exposure to training. And then, and then lastly, you might have people that are working in the European Work Time Directive, but no longer working in a team-based system. Um, it's sort of, a, uh, let's call it a shift pattern. And um, you fill in a shift as you needed and you work with multiple people. And depending on where you are, this could be uh, excellent, this could be challenging, uh, or this could be completely unpredictable. And understanding that is difficult. Uh, predicting how that will be is even more difficult. Um, so, so, you know, experiences can vary. What I can say is try and ask lots of people what their experiences are and then combine these experiences and understand what kind of similarities they have when it comes to good things and what kind of similarities they have when it comes to challenging things. And then there might be some extreme outliers. So there might be things that, you know, uh, may be the case for particular people, but may not be the case for pretty much anyone else. And I would even say that try and understand these outliers and see if these are potentially things that can happen. And when you've expanded your mind to the point where you understand all these possible variables, then uh, you can um, you can basically, uh, you know, you can basically prepare for it. Personally, how, how have you found, you know, your first sort of two years of surgical training? Yes, so I think I think how you find uh, core surgical training is very dependent on how you find things before uh, as well. And I was fortunate where um, so I have uh, I have an interest in a speciality that I got to uh, work in previously, and I that was a very encouraging department. I got quite a lot of exposure, and this was all before training. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, uh, whilst you're trying to get into uh, core surgical training, you're working really hard uh, on your portfolio, on uh, your interview, your interview skills, uh, on being able to understand the sort of topics that they will um, uh, they will ask you about. 
Uh, and, you know, all of these things are great. And then you step into the job and it can be totally unpredictable. Uh, and it's very hard to predict how it's going to be like. You can look at things like surveys and you can uh, look at uh, what everyone else is saying. But, you know, it's very, very hard to predict how training is going to be like. And it's very, very hard to predict how um, you're going to experience it. So in my first year, um, I was in a speciality that I liked. Uh, I was teamed in that speciality. So that's orthopedics. And, uh, you know, I had expectations. And, you know, this is flaw number one. Um, having expectations going into something and, uh, you know, then not not really being malleable enough uh, to know that things could be challenging um, uh, from a from a staffing point of view or from COVID or something or another. And, you know, that could affect your training quite a bit. And, um you know, although I still feel that I tried and uh, others tried their best to make the best of what we could, but, uh, you know, things can be tough in different places. Uh, and now I'm in my second year and I'm in uh, um, general surgery and, you know, I'm actually having a great time. And, you know, our teaching has changed and quite a few things have changed. There's a different kind of pressure this year, but um, it's... Uh, it's it's still you know it's very different uh i'm doing things that i would regard as more uh senior responsibilities um you spend less time on things like wards and stuff unless you're on call um i'm in theater a lot more in clinic and you know yesterday i went to a anatomy teaching day and we were um we were being taught on cadavers which uh something most people don't see until after uh, well they don't see again after medical school, uh, unless they do something very specialized. You know, we're fortunate to have that ability. So it can really, really vary. So when I think of like your surgical sort of training years, conscious that it can clash with starting and, and building a family. So if you, you don't mind, how, how have you found balancing the, the so-called work-life balance? Oof, this is, uh, mm. you know, we could talk about this for years. Yeah. Uh, this is this is this is a very very interesting thing and you know i'm I'm really glad that you actually thought of asking something like this so you know when you're quite young and by quite young i'm speaking relatively of course i'm not trying to generalize yeah. uh um you like uh in university or um even at the start of your career this might not be a thing that you are um you know thinking about every day and it might not cross your mind and, you know, you'll be like, well, you know, night shifts and on calls and unpredictable um, sort of patterns of work are, you know, absolutely fine. It's okay. It's, uh, it's part of the process. However, as you move along and, you know, most of us will, will probably want to settle down. Most of us will have a serious relationship at this stage in our life when we either we're at the end of university or perhaps even slightly later on. Um, and, you know, some of us will also want to have a family. It, it does become challenging. And what, what I find even more challenging is that sometimes it's difficult to ask your seniors about things like this. Um, it's a very, very personal question to bring up. It's not something that you can sort of bring up in between cases and ask people, well, you know, how do you manage with kids? Uh, um, so I think I think this is something that as a medical student, but even as a junior doctor, you should really think about, uh, especially if you're the kind of person that's 
wanting to have a family quite soon or um, uh, early on in your career, uh, there's a lot of difficulties associated with this, which we've tried to help uh, with new initiatives. But um, there's also some things that, you know, we probably will have a hard time changing. So I'll address one of the things that are um, around and much more accessible that should make it a little bit easier. So less than full-time training. So less than full-time training used to be rare. It used to be something that people taught, um, well, you know, only um, someone in a particular situation can do. So perhaps a female colleague who might have young children and, you know, um, would not be in a situation where they could effectively provide childcare. And that's a very generic and generalized example that I've created here out of the blue. But, uh, you know, the, this is the kind of thing we talked. But now it's changing. Uh, it's evolving a little bit. And, um, you know, it's uh, becoming possible for both genders to be able to seek less than full-time training. And um, the other interesting thing is that, you know, we're maturing uh, as a profession, realizing that, uh, one, we need to um, be flexible in this area, but two, we're becoming competency-based, which essentially means is, that rather than um, rather than sort of uh, checkered flags at different stages um, for time spent, uh, we are now going to look at skills or we're going to look at specific competencies which allow progression through training. And you know some of this is slightly new, some of it is carrying on for things that have been done for years, and we're really feeling the way out how this can work. So um, you know. I don't have the understanding to see if this will continue to be the, the case, but um, I'm sure this is the direction we're heading. This is the direction of travel. So there's lots of options now, but I still find it challenging. Uh, me and my wife, my wife wants to be a GP training. Uh, she's currently looking at the moment. Um, and our plan was, or is, to apply for training together. So I apply for my ST3 training and she applies for GP training. and somehow we uh, geographically align that. Um, so I think in our situation it might be slightly more possible and some people in some other situations it's not as possible. So I think the whole idea of being able to be flexible, have a family and uh, uh, that domain doesn't just get pushed aside. it's still it's still quite challenging. Now aspect of that like children. Um, we're thinking about that too, and that's quite difficult. And I can imagine as a medical student, probably doesn't even cross your mind, but I think um, there's going to be many facets to this uh, um, sort of question that uh, we will probably need to talk about more openly. And uh, it will range from things like family nearby to childcare and, you know, access to resources and, you uh, and I would say last but not least and possibly most importantly, pay. And uh, pay is becoming a big thing and uh, in a lot of uh, sort, sort of uh, uh, the town squares of uh, conversation <laughs> for medics like Twitter or, um, or well, Reddit or Facebook. Uh, it's, becoming, um, it's, it, it's becoming something that's coming up quite a lot. So pay, pensions, all this stuff. 
Um, so I think I think there's lots of challenges. Uh, we aren't simply a nine to five profession. We aren't simply a profession that can you know shut up shop after five p.m. and everyone's okay. And you know, uh, for a large time in your career, you will be working in a shift pattern. You will be doing nights. You'll be doing long days. Sometimes you might be doing um, you know on calls that might be non-resident, and you know everyone thinks great, fantastic, but you know. Not necessarily. <laughs> what if you do that and uh, you have kids, um, and you know you're not sure who's looking after those kids? Now, most people will have someone around that can look after the kids if they have to come in. But you know, it puts you in that dilemma. There's no, there's no com. There's you can't get comfortable about any of these things, even um, if you were given the opportunity to be on call and you're resident at home or something like that uh, your flexibility is not towards your family or your uh, life your flexibility is essentially towards your work and uh, moving forwards we need to figure out what's a what's a better balance to provide flexibility to uh, your your work but also to to your life um, i think there'll be many debates about this i'm interested to hear what's out there it's all really interesting to hear from from you that's going through it at the moment because RCS NHS have come out with these new initiatives. Uh, they said like a more relaxed sort of, or they'll accept more applications for less than full time training, or let's say they try and put you in weird and wonderful geographical locations. You can say no and and state a reason why. But for someone on the ground now, are you seeing those initiatives actually working? Now, in terms of personal experience, right? Um, I can actually talk about. Uh, one thing that I've noticed personally is um, there's a trainee that I came across that uh, uh, is a more senior trainee, and they sort of they it's in it's in my current job in general surgery, and uh, you know they have got access to less than full time training and being able to uh, stay in the subspeciality of that sub uh, of that speciality that they're interested in, and be less than full time and dedicate more time to family, and. And you know they're an excellent person. Like they're an excellent trainee. They're mm. they're they're uh, incredibly nice to speak to. Uh, the times I've been in theatre with them, they're very very good. They uh, try their best to talk me through cases, talk me through things. And you know, if I was to be honest, that's a person that I look up to. So you know, if we create space uh, to have um, flexibility for our colleagues, and then later for us. Um, then you know th these th good things will happen. Good things will happen, and we we need to create this space because if we don't, then you know all this frustration, all the stress, it will all add up to everything else that's going on. So you know to to answer your question about initiatives, I think these initiatives should really be no brainers, um, and we should really try and do what we can to um, allow these to happen because. Um, the the rare instances I've seen them, I would say they resulted in very, very positive impact, um, particularly for the people that they benefited, but also for um, also for people that, you know, uh, are around them, because the general impact of this is uh, is, is very helpful. It's uh, it allows a positive atmosphere. It allows people to be flexible and not being in a position where you can choose where you're going or who you're near, like uh, undue uh, degrees of stress on you that uh, are really going to impact your job, your ability to care for patients. And um, 
you know, the, the, there's so many negatives there that we should really think about this. This this idea of rotational training uh, is great, but um, you know, we definitely need to move away from some of the negatives because um, we are not in a necessarily easy profession. We're in a profession that's challenging, and we really need to be on our game uh, 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 a lot of the time. And we're facing uh, unforeseen challenges uh, at the moment. So when I say unforeseen, I'm, I don't just mean um, things like uh, COVID or, uh, well, COVID is an unforeseen challenge. I don't necessarily mean things like uh, gaps in the rota or the job just being hard. Uh, I mean things that there's such a degree of unpredictability to what one day can be compared to the other that, uh, you know, we really need to be um, in a position where we are emotionally uh, fulfilled. We are fulfilled within the job and we're not stressed about the things that are on our periphery thinking whilst we're, we're working. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of factors again, another long winded answer, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think this is an important one. And I think if bigger organizations pay more attention to this, this will really, really pay off in the future. Definitely. I think it's about just, you know, keeping those trainees happy and if, you know, if they're happy and they're safe and they're going to do, do their best work. Um, sticking with the theme of surgical, surgical training, you've managed to get a place onto the core surgical training program, which from my standpoint as a medical student, I, I look up to that. I think, wow, that's really amazing. It's then now even harder for you to then get a place on higher speciality training. And then from places, you know, like, like Twitter that we see, you and and looking at and talking to other doctors i then know there's like a bottleneck for consultant jobs and reading all these things it makes me really nervous about the future and, and i do you feel the same yeah so that's a very interesting point um and you know I, i'll take a second to sort of sidetrack here yeah. and just uh mention that you know these are some incredible things to even think about and discuss uh especially for people that uh, might be at a medical student stage. I, I really think we need to think deeply about these um, questions. Um, now, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, totally allow them to scare you uh, from doing what you're interested in or what you want to do, but these are important questions. So, um, getting on to training, yes. So, when when you transition from, so when you're a medical student, uh, you sort of uh, go on the wards and you're like, oh, wow, look at these guys, they're doctors. Or you may just be looking up to the foundation doctors. You're like, you know what? I can't wait to be this person. I can't wait to do this job. I can't wait to do that. And, uh, or, or not. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know some people are changing from uh, that to, you know, simply wanting to be the court training because that might be the first time they're doing the areas or specialties that they're interested in. But, um, you know, you might look forward to that. It might be a step or a challenge to get to that. As soon as you're there, um, you know, that kind of fades away for a little bit. And then it's the, the next step and the next challenge and the, uh, the next point of entry. And then you do that. And then, you know, you are by this stage a little bit exhausted. And uh, but you, you don't have a lot of time in another two years. You need to apply again or you need to go for the next step. Um, and you know, you work hard and you do that and you look to that and you're like, wow, I can't wait to be a registrar. And this just looks awesome. And you know, this is the speciality that I've now come to love. And 
that's what I want to do. So you work hard, you work hard. And then you get to registrar and you're pretty beat up. Uh, and But then you're like, okay, well, you know, I've got, I've made it. This is it. I'm made now. And um, by the time you're registrar, you're like, wow, there's a lot of responsibility. This learning curve is incredibly steep at ST3. You know, many, many people will tell you that. And, um, you know, I really, really need to work hard. And that's six years. And, you know, that's six years that you have to work hard. And then you get to ST3 for around four or five. Some people may take some time out to an extra degree, uh, depending on what speciality they're in. Uh, some people may go out and do a PhD. Uh, you know, it's an incredible commitment to do that. Uh, some people may do a master's alongside their studies. But then you're towards six and seven. And people are thinking about things like uh, fellowship exams, so the FRCS, and, you know, that's challenging as well. And by this stage, many people have kids and are married um, and are juggling the rest of their lives together. And, you know, in their mind, they're like, uh, some degree of normality must have uh, panned out by now. And uh, it may have, or it may not have. So, you know, depending on how your training is going and how um, your ability to get these exams done and other projects uh, is going will determine how you feel. And then you get towards the end of training and then you have to do fellowship. And uh, after fellowship, you have to look for consultant jobs or you may be offered it or you may have the opportunity to apply for it before. Uh, you know, th these are, the, I'm, I'm sort of looking into uh, the, the, the fog of war here. These aren't things that I know from personal experience. And, um, you know, that may be challenging. So that is when you'll encounter that bottleneck. And, you know, that can be deeply frustrating uh, because this individual, this sort of hypothetical individual that we've just spoken about now, um, has faced multiple challenges. And, you know, starting their journey and being a medical student or uh, starting their journey at any point, they may have been incredibly bright and they may have been incredibly hardworking. And then they might face a point where, you know, they might have, uh, a challenge getting a uh, consultant post or a post where they want to get um, or a geographical location where they want to stay. And, you know, all of this is challenging. Uh, and as a profession, it, it, make, it does make it uh, something that, you know, one, we need to be mentally resilient uh, in this profession. But two, you know, I would argue that there is no degree of uh, resilience that can uh, sometimes prepare you for um, these hurdles. And the question we need to ask after this is, how many of these hurdles actually make sense? Um, and, you know, I'll let people that are far better uh, versed than me to answer this. But, uh, you know, we really need to then think about, should we be a bit more economical about how we present these hurdles and which hurdles are more relevant to the end goal and which hurdle, hur hurdles aren't? And, uh, you know, these are questions that maybe I can pose and someone that is uh, um, much more experienced than I am can can try and help us understand and answer. And, uh, you know, th th there's lots of people that are thinking these exact same things. I sort of really struggle to understand is that, so you've got, I don't know exactly how many there are, but all these, um, you know, well, budding sort of consultant surgeons, let's say they all get onto ST3, that, like you say, lasts six years, six years of hard work. And then all the consultants post, well, those can last decades. So what are what's happening to all these uh, sort of ST-level surgeons? But then there are no consultants. Are they sort of just waiting for them to retire? 
Yeah, this is a this is an incredible question uh, to be thinking of, <laughs> um, and um, I can't I can't say that I haven't thought of this too. And you know, it's something that's crossed my mind. I had a conversation about this to a uh, um, uh, a consultant um, and uh, asked them, who was a bit more familiar with uh, training and how training positions are sort of created. And I think what they told me is that there is some complexity behind it um, that, you know, we don't really see, obviously. Uh, um, but the complexity can range from anything like uh, prediction of what they feel uh, consult posts will be need to be increased by to uh, how they expect colleagues to retire. So I, I think there is some thought to how training posts are created. Um, but, you know, your question is good in the sense that it, 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 it is ultimately unpredictable. And I think you can predict it to a degree and you can plan for it to a degree, but it is ultimately difficult to predict. Um, and, I'll, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm not sort of just uh, saying things in, 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 in smoke here. But um, what I mean by that is uh, we've got multiple challenges. So one of the biggest challenges that maybe not us, but our senior consultants are facing is um, taxation around the pension. And this is a sort of well controversial, but I wouldn't say your pension or your livelihood should be considered controversial things to talk about. But um, people are now in a pension system that will penalize them for working extra or working more or working harder once they surpass a certain point. Now, as any professional, um, you will probably pass that point uh, at uh, a specific age. And if you increase the pension age or if you increase the age at uh, um, which people can retire, then, you know, people will accrue more money in those pots. And that's essentially what's going on. And this is forcing a lot more people to, one, retire or do fewer sessions, which essentially means uh, sessions like a half day, um, um, which essentially means is that, uh, you know, they're trying to be as efficient as possible. And so far, there hasn't really been anything that I would personally classify as effective being done to change that. Now, how as a medical student, pray tell, shall you worry about things like this? Well, you know, this could work out in the benefit, but also, you know, in a massive um, sort of um, disadvantage <laughs> to um, many people. So the benefit could be that many people now may retire in a very short space of time. The idea that that would be beneficial is controversial, but I think it will do more damage to society than any good. Uh, the thing why it's not advantageous to many of us is that many of these um, senior um, consultants may have been excellent people to train us, excellent people to society at large and to the healthcare system. And by forcing them in this position, we are now, um, you know, potentially losing people that could train us, that could help provide an amazing service. And uh, it, it's really not a progressive way of uh, uh, looking at a problem. Um, so. I think there are solutions proposed. Some people have proposed solutions like what's being done with judges. Um, I wouldn't go into the detail of that. I don't think I'm qualified. Um, but, uh, you know, most of this is things that I've heard from seniors, things that I've seen on Twitter. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, it's worrying.
Okay, I mean that's that's certainly helped me understand it a little bit better. I'm I'm a final year medical student. I'm sort of someone that is staring not probably is not too long maybe in my future of joining that pathway at the, at the core surgical stage. What advice would you have for me, and would you would you even recommend it? Okay, so I guess I could break it down into two different uh, things, but. Let's let's create two different hypothetical scenarios, and we'll start with the first one. So the first hypothetical scenario could be that you're now a medical student within the last two years of uh, your studies, and you know you made up your mind that you want to follow a surgical pathway, um, you know, conveniently because that's the one that I can I can talk about, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and um, you know now you want to get planning. So I would say have a good look at what are the points of entry to that career. Uh, so obviously you need to do foundation years that everyone will do or, or the equivalent of that. Um, and um, once you have done that, you can be eligible to apply for training. So for core surgical training, you'll usually have a checklist uh, for the portfolio uh, that is, well, at the times that I needed it, was easily available on the internet or on the uh, um, the deanery website. Uh, and that will outline all of the things for which you will score points on your portfolio. And, um, you know, it's uh, very important to read those carefully because many of us do extracurricular activities with the hope of them having some kind of an impact to our portfolio, positive impact, I hope. Um, yet it's very difficult for us to predict how much of that will actually be weighed or taken into consideration. And I think if you keep um, if you keep your target in vision from the start, it, it, it just helps you to prioritize things a bit better. So I think that's important. So the biggest thing you can do uh, early, early on in your aspiration to follow a career in surgery is to have that ready and uh, see if uh, you can fulfill any of that while you're a medical student. So my answer would be that you can fulfill quite a few degrees of that. You can fulfill things like um, research. That's a big, big one. So you can get involved in research in university and get some papers that are PubMed cited and um, see how that goes. You can try and get involved in things like audits, but that's a bit difficult as a student. Uh, you can try and get involved in courses or surgical societies. Uh, things that will give you equivalent points. Uh, you can go to conferences and present the research that you've done or have some kind of presentation that you can present. And you can take up leadership roles. And, you know, as I mentioned with a society, you can have a leadership role in that society. You can uh, help organize teaching and you do that. And th there's a multitude of things that you can do um, whilst you're a uh, medical student. Now, you've done that, you're a medical student, you've ticked off as many of those things as you can. Now, what do you do next? So I would argue there's two things that you can do next in an ideal scenario and uh, you know things that I forgot about, but I would have done. Uh, one is look at the membership exams and try and get them done as soon as you can. And the reason for this is, I think when you do finals exams, um, you are probably at your peak in terms of exam performance performance, uh, SBAs and MCQs, you're probably seeing quite a lot of that, as that is the main thing you do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, apart from 
other clinical work or uh, things like OSCEs, but that is the main thing you do, right? Uh, whereas when you start working, um, yes, you might still retain some of that knowledge, but it's a whole different kind of skill set and it's a whole different demand. And you start to lose some of those uh, skills, knowledge, information, techniques, whatever you want to call it. And I think the earlier you get the part A out of the way, the better. The next thing you can do is, and I wish I did this uh, even earlier, is uh, look at what intended speciality do you wish to do your higher specialty training in and look at their ST3 portfolio uh, requirements and really you know, have a good look at what ha have you been able to tick off from this early. Uh, so that might include things like publications. Um, and you know, what else do you need to do now? And then start planning for that. And then once you've done that, you've got your part A exam. Uh, some, well, many do have to sit it a few times, but if you try and get it out the way early, um, and even if you have to sit it a few times, you might be in a better situation. And then you prepare for your part B. And then after that, you just transition, um, you know, through training. So through core surgical training and see where you want to go next. But this way you've prepared for um, core surgical training. You have an idea of what to do for SD3 training. And uh, you know, the biggest hurdle that I feel that you have in training apart from small things in portfolio um, is the exams. And uh, we can talk about different uh, details to this hypothetical situation. But I think this would be the best way, the, the ideal situation to pan out. This, rarely happens for some people it does but it rarely happens uh and you know i'm not taking into consideration like uh, um relationships and geographic location and stress at work and stress at university um and you know just your emotional well-being I'm, I'm presuming that you're a complete robot here and uh you're just doing these things one by one or you have an ideal scenario or an ideal situation where everything else in your life is going really well too um, so these things rarely happen, but this is how it would, uh, I guess, look, um, you know, if you're having a difficult time, you're having a really hard time, or you're in a situation where you're just about finishing, or you now become a doctor and, uh, you're really, really, uh, stuck, um, or you feel stuck, uh, and you're like, oh, I've done none of this and I have to do a full-time job and exams and other stuff and things like, I don't know, ALS or their uh, portfolio requirements um, I really find it challenging. Take a step back and, you know, have a think about things that make you happy. What kind of things fulfill you, make you feel happy and fulfilled, um, and whether it is worth it or not. And these are important things to take into consideration. Why? Well, we're in a situation where economically the country isn't doing good. Uh, where we have things like uh, cost of living crisis, uh, and that includes energy prices not being great. Uh, our pay has gone down um, something like 30% in the last 10 years for junior doctors. It's even worse for consultants. Um, as I mentioned, uh, issues around pension. Um, there are many, many issues um, in medicine, in this profession. Um, and, you know, each time I have a conversation like this with anyone, it's very, very difficult to try and stop the conversation from just becoming one big bone about this being wrong and that being wrong to actually providing some solutions. 
because it seems that there are solutions, but there are some solutions that are just simply not there unless we fundamentally change the system. And I cannot, um, I suppose I cannot uh, predict with certainty that my colleagues that are going to be coming up uh, in the profession, medical students that are going to become doctors in the future will not have to face these difficult situations, or indeed it may, uh, not actually be worse for them. Uh, you know, it's hard to predict this, but I would say is have these conversations with friends, with family, think about these things, think about them in depth and in detail. And, you know, there's many things that you can do as, and see what fulfills you the most. And then in terms of surgery, uh, we glamorize surgery and other parts of medicine quite a lot. And think about whether you feel it is worth it uh, for you. And, you know, if you feel it is worth it and you're still stuck, uh, then, uh, you know, do not at all worry about uh, things like, oh, I need to do this at a um, training level by this stage. Um, but also think about how practically that will affect you. Um, and, you know, make your make your decisions based on that. Take the time out that you need to prepare for certain um, step-ups uh, if you need to. Um, and uh, uh, basically think about what you can do to improve your chances of then making your next training position or moving from one training position to another uh, and what you need to do. Now, um, you know, the second hypothetical scenario, I feel like I'm rambling a bit on that. But um, you can take it as quick, you can go through training as quickly or as slowly as you like, but you need to remember that your mental well-being is probably the most important thing and how you feel emotionally and as a person is uh, what you're going to carry with you long after your training is finished. And that is probably more important. So I would say pay attention to that and, and you know, give that the um, attention that it requires. When I listen to that, I think, you know, the training seems extremely difficult. I think getting onto a training pathway seems extremely difficult. Your mental well-being seems to take a hit. There's bad geographical implications. We have had like a real terms pay cut. There are 30%. Why, why does anyone do it? You know, talking about being a doctor or a surgeon, you know, why are you doing it? I'll describe a typical week, uh, I guess, well, somewhat of a week. Um, so the best situation could be in training. So even core surgical training is um, your week looks like um, Monday, you have a, an elective day and maybe you're in theater in some specialties. You might do ward round before as well, uh, you know, delegate, de delegate some jobs, um, move on, go to theater, do your cases, get home, hopefully on time. Uh, day two, uh, you know, you're helping out clinic, you're still a very junior trainee, so you might be shadowing or you might see um, a couple of patients, discuss them with your senior, try and execute a plan, and, you know, that's that's your day. Um, day three, you might be on call, and that can be very, very exhausting. Um, and, you know, we are now routinely seeing uh, rota gaps in uh especially in situations where you're on call is where it probably makes the most impact and nothing is really being done about it. Um, and, you know, the easy solution is that, uh, you know, if you have a gap and you can't recruit someone onto the gap, that's a permanent gap, then 
uh, essentially, it is an infinite amount of money <laughs> that you need to offer people to fill that gap. You know, people are going to give up their time to uh, come in on their free time to do that uh, job or that work. You need to give whatever money is required. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the, uh, there, there, there can't be an upper limit. And the reason is the minute we start creating upper limits for things like this, we start putting a, uh, a financial value to the well-being of your uh, colleagues and a well, the well-being of uh, the professionals that provide your service and to the well-being of patients. That, that's essentially what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say it so bluntly, but um, if we can't fill those gaps and we're not willing to uh, really make uh, the number required to fill it infinite, uh, stupid as that sounds, um, then you know we're we're thinking in a in a different way, um, and on calls are particularly different uh, difficult when you have those gaps because essentially what's happening is that in the on call you're not just doing your job, um, you're doing other people's job, and you're well people that are managing you are relying on the fact that it may not be so busy, <laughs> uh, but when when it is busy. Then you know it's it's a disaster. It's uh it's uh probably very very emotionally uh, challenging and uh, stressful situations, and uh, you know we can't keep going the way that we are. It's not sustainable, right? So <laughs> we spent a lot of time on Wednesday there. Okay, okay. Uh, the next day Thursday. Let's say you have a, another elective day, and we're still talking about the ideal scenario. By the way, um, we have another elective day, so you might spend that in theater or cine. Uh, and then Friday, say you have some kind of teaching, so you spend a degree of that day doing the, uh, being involved in the teaching, uh, which I did fortunately uh, this week that went by. Uh, and you know that that might be your day if it's full day teaching session, or uh, you might have a half day teaching session or a departmental teaching session. So depending on what it is, you might have some other clinical activities. Might be a clinic, might be theatre. This is the ideal scenario. Um, and you know, even in this ideal scenario, we have an on-call situation where you might be short on staff, um, which is uh, becoming very, very consistent. Now, what is sort of not the ideal scenario and probably something that happens a lot more at people that are uh, at the core surgical training stage? You know, you turn up in Monday and you're rotated to be on an elected day and all of a sudden there's a gap in the rota. Um and uh, as we mentioned, rather than filling it, uh, you are told that, you know, your elective, like your training uh, is not a priority. So go to the ward and do ward work. And, uh, you know, that is your day. And uh, all you do on the ward is, is uh, well, essentially what you did in FY1, FY2. Um, day two, uh, you managed to get into theater, but uh, the theater... <laughs> Uh, is having issues or uh, the turnaround time is uh, affected and um, we aren't in a position to get patients turned around quickly and where you were supposed to do four cases, you're now doing two. Um, so, you know, on your theater day or uh, your training days, they've already been impacted. Um, instead of having two days where you could have had exposure to cases, you have one day and on that one day as well, you basically have exposure to fewer cases and it's completely out of your control. Uh, now, day three, you're going to uh, clinic and uh, 
you know, you've been told that you're rotated in for clinic and uh, you go to clinic and you spend an hour or two there and you're like, it's absolutely fantastic. And then all of a sudden you get a text or you get a call and you're told, well, you know, um, because we are not running uh, in, uh, uh, in, a, in, in, in a capacity where, you know, we have the ability to um, uh, provide uh, service when there's someone that's sick or someone not available so uh, and we've not been able to fill it with a locum so now you do it because you're on a training activity and uh, everyone else is slotted to other service activities and uh, it is now for you to do so now you leave your clinic day and you go do the on call which is arguably a different kind of uh, work activity uh, and you're not getting paid uh, for this and uh, even though it's until five it's physically and probably legally impossible for you to leave at five uh, because um, the person you need to hand over will probably get there at eight and uh, the senior that uh, you're also allotted with uh, has challenging and difficult situations that they need to take care of whether that be theater or ed or wherever it is so you know you're carrying on those responsibilities for no fault of your own and then you get to thursday and friday and you know by this time you're super disillusioned and beat up and um you know you're probably slotted in let's say for another training activity um and this training activity is designed to make up for what happened uh in the previous few days and you know you get to see half of that but then you're told that you know there's another gap because you remember don't forget you have a running gap on your rota uh so you need to go and help out somewhere else and uh, you go and promptly do that. And by the time you get to Friday, um, you have your study activity uh, program. Um, you're being told that, you know, we're sorry because of the pressure that we have on the road at the moment. Uh, you cannot go to your study activity and, uh, you know, you need to stay. Uh, so, you know, the, the second scenario is kind of a bit of, might be seen as a bit of an extreme, but I can tell you confidently, these are things that I've seen firsthand. These aren't just stories and these aren't just things that I've been told. And this is a week that I've experienced firsthand. Uh, so, you know, it then begs the question that if it's so challenging and so difficult to get onto training, whether that be core surgical training or ST3, um, people do say things change drastically by ST3. And I, I have a tendency to agree with that. Um, but, you know, you are essentially doing four years where it's very difficult of which uh, getting onto the two years of training that allow you to move on to registrar training is challenging. And I think in the past has had comp uh, competition ratios of something like uh, three to one, four to one. Um, it's, it's not an easy thing to get onto. So are we really doing justice to people that are having this much difficulty to get onto these programs and then, uh, not providing the training that they need. Um, yeah, I, I think it's not good. It's uh, it's something that we need to think about uh, deeper and we really, really need to plan for this um, because what is going to happen is that uh, regardless of how much resilience or endurance these people have, which I have no doubt that they will have, uh, they will be burnt out. They will be very disillusioned with the system. They will not want to be in that career path anymore and uh, it'll be challenging and you know we're not we're not actually factoring in other things here so on top of this um not so great week 
you then go home, you have to study, you might be doing things like projects, uh, you might be doing teaching or something like that. And you know, you're doing this on your own time, and you're doing this um, voluntarily. And you might run into something like 7pm, uh, doing some of these activities. And, uh, you know, from seven to nine might be all the free time that you have. And your day probably started at uh, seven o'clock. Uh, so you're essentially on a mental level on call uh, that entire day, even though it was a eight to five day. Um, and, you know, some people may not mind this. Some people may mind it. It really depends person to person. But I think what we need to do is we need to do justice to what is training. We need to provide the opportunities that people need to be able to move forwards in their career. And um, I think one thing I would really address here is that um, a lot of people go into medicine with this idea of security. And I, I think um, it is it is secure uh, to a degree. But, you know, there is no guarantee that uh, you will move from one stage to another stage even if you do all the things that are required. So, you know, we really need to step back and have a think about security. And, you know, we really need to think about that. Medical students to begin with are really bright people, regardless of where they are, where they're from, um, really doesn't matter. And, um, you know, junior doctors are very bright people. And then people that get onto training posts are incredibly committed and very, very bright and good at what they do. And, uh, you know, if we have uh, a situation where this level of workforce is feeling not great um you we, we need to ask questions we need to see how we can make that better and th that is all that i would say to these challenges and you know some of these podcasts you always have people that are <laughs> very happy and uh, a very glamorized uh description and uh, impression of uh, what the profession is but i think we're facing a point now where too many challenges are piling up and not many solutions are coming around to get rid of them. Much like the, uh, much like the uh, crisis with beds, uh, we have uh, too many presentations requ uh, requiring admission and uh, not as many discharges or well, possible discharges. So, you know, it's all the same kind of team. And, uh, you know, many of us that want to stay in the profession, we need to think around this. We need to think around solutions. And I think what, what I personally, and, you know, I really mean this, is that the biggest way we can help here is to help people that come to us for, like, uh, help, advice, and uh, suggestions. To create a better environment um, for future colleagues that we may at one day be in contact with in terms of training or uh, that might be junior to us. And, you know, when you do become the consultant, trying to be the person that then tries to um, bring in change. And, you know, I, I tell myself this, I'm not there yet. I'm very far from it. Um, but um, if you keep that attitude, maybe it'll work. But at the same time, I see the challenges that people that are at that senior stage also face when it comes to staffing, management, um, all the other tasks that are required in their job role. So it's really not easy. I think we've taken a turn for a turn for the the gloom uh, here, uh, Frank. But uh, I think some of these things are interesting to just even just uh, verbalize. No, absolutely. And and the more people that talk about them, sort of the more I don't know, real they actually they get because because you're right. A lot of people do glamorize it, and that's a 
a fascinating sort of insight into what surgical training is actually is actually like that you know you're sort of your the second scenario of your week there but you're right we have gone a little bit gloom so in a more positive sort of um aspect what speciality of of uh, surgery are you passionate about what do you want to go into yeah so um uh you know i I'm, I, I can't say my interest changed. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in orthopedics. I'll probably continue to be interested in orthopedics. Uh, um, but, you know, I have now realized that I am keeping my other interests alive too. Um, there was very much of me that uh, had this mindset that, you know, once I've set a path, uh, can sort of put the other interests to bed for a while, and I will just, uh, you know, stay on this one area of interest and um, stick with that. And actually, my advice would be is that it doesn't matter what field or area of medicine you're in. You know, if you have other interests, keep them alive, like keep, keep them going. And this is the best advice I'll give people. And the reason for that is, for whatever reason, um, difficulty getting onto a training pathway geographical restrictions um you know you may have a family and it's impossible for you to move many many things may prevent you from following a trajectory that you know you may have initially thought as being um the one for you so if you keep your other interests alive for, for me that's uh things like technology and uh um teaching is a bit of it and um there's lots of other non-medical interests that i have um and you know i'm now slowly trying to go back into them and uh you know once you've let them go it does become difficult because uh you sort of feel to yourself well you know i was a lot more well versed with this thing than i was before and you enter into this learning curve challenge again that you initially thought you were quite good at keep your interests and hobbies alive um and by doing so this is a very very good hedge for whatever turn your career or to actually have other interests that can transform into careers or income or, you know, something substantial. Um, most of the colleagues that I deal with, most people that I deal with in medicine are very bright. They're just, they're, they're just simply very talented people. And um, the, the thing that I'd hate to see is any of these people giving up on talents or hobbies or interests that they, you know, have had as they move through life. So don't give up on that. That's first piece of uh, uh, sort of advice I guess I can say here the next thing in terms of my interests so orthopedics yes that's my interest why am I interested in orthopedics I think I liked a couple of specialities and um, the reason I arrived at orthopedics is um, apart from it just being super cool uh, it's going to be a very impactful uh, area of medicine into the future it's very hard uh, to create well any technology that can get rid of some of the mainstays of orthopedics and particularly trauma uh you, you know you can't tech your way out of uh broken bones and uh a lot of other things uh that are in orthopedics but um the other thing is that you know we have an aging population i think um it was the GERFT um um recommendations uh one of the first things they talk about is the aging population the requirements and uh you know we are going to have something like i think 14.9 million people over the age of 65 uh by 2030 so that's a lot of people and many of these people will require things like 
joint replacement, but also other medical care. But, you know, many of these people we can sort of presume here are active, are uh, now in a better society than they would have been 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so therefore, their access to um, good food, uh, better lifestyle, uh, little things like that that will allow them to seek orthopedic um, treatment uh, is higher. And uh, I think orthopedics from that point of view and several other things is going to be a great and, uh, you know, very important speciality into the future. Not that it isn't already. Um, so that's it. And the other thing is that there's a lot of conceptual stuff to orthopedics that isn't isn't sort of necessarily traditional medicine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I'm being, I should be a bit careful what I say next. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what I mean is that there's, there's a tremendous amount of engineering in orthopedics and there's concepts in orthopedics that are more engineering than, than traditional medicine. And I find that really cool. Like uh, um, I think understanding mechanics and uh, understanding how our body wears out and uh, what kind of injuries should be treated in what kind of a way and how really we are facilitating the biological uh, mechanisms that the body already has. I think it's all cool. Like it's, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, my way of describing these things might be very subjective and again, uh, a total rambling to other people, but I think um, I find it, I certainly find it as a speciality that I can do for, for, for forever. And uh, my emotional well-being on the days that I'm in theater, uh, like an orthopedic theater is, is amazing. Like I, f I genuinely feel happy. And, you know, my wife, uh, sees me when I come back uh, from some of those theater days. And, um, you know, she kind of tells me that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you did this stuff for free. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I kind of told her, yes, probably, but just don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, so, so you know, if you feel that way about something, then it's probably worth pursuing it. Now, in terms of getting there and uh, all those other things, I think we've discussed that in detail, and I do hope I get there. But I'm I'm a bit more um, I'm a bit more realist as well now about things that you know if I have challenges if I have things I have ways now that I think about pivoting or doing other things and you know I'm equally interested in them and it's very interesting and I never thought I'd find myself in a situation like this in life where you know I'd be equally interested in one uh, field or one profession as something else and. Uh, you know, I would I would really, really tell and urge people to look at things like that because life can be long. Our professional lives can be very long. Uh, training is incredibly long. Uh, if you really think about it, we train and study for something like 16 years. Uh, that's a huge chunk of life. Um, so, you know, all of these things taken into consideration. Uh, think about what makes you the happiest, what allows you to have the lifestyle and the life uh, that you want, what allows you to feel happy in your environments and, uh, you know, go from there. And, uh, that is what I'm trying to figure out personally. And, uh, I guess if I had uh, advice to give that, that's what I would say too. And it's amazing how passionate you are about it and, and good luck for your, you know, your higher surgical training application. A question that we like to sort of end on with, with lots of our surgical stories is, can you tell us about any sort of interesting or, or amazing, you know, patient stories that you've had? Yeah, I've had a few. Some are some are far too interesting uh, <laughs> uh -huh. to get away uh, get away with and not get in trouble. Uh, 
I'll tell a sort of generic story though. I won't go into too much detail. It happens fairly close to uh, when I was finishing uh, my uh, orthopedic rotation. And I was on nights and uh, and there was uh, someone who'd come in uh, who had a femoral shaft fracture. And, uh, you know, we have to, we have to splint it. <laughs> uh, is is the simple, simple thing that we were trying to do. Um, but this individual is quite young, um, and uh, you know, quite young, quite rowdy, and uh, not really, not really having it with any of us. And um, I pretty much spent an hour trying to explain to him uh, why we need to put a splint on and why he shouldn't have a go with everyone that's trying to help him. And uh, the story was really, really peculiar. So he had some kind of a scooter and he decided to go race uh, a truck on that scooter and jeer at it. And when he then crashed into the, the truck, uh, he then had a problem with everyone else around him, including the person on the truck um, all the pedestrians and uh, and then everyone else that he encountered afterwards uh, and seemed to blame them. And he seemed to think that someone in in one of the pedestrians uh, were the cause of him having this uh, incident. But um, yeah, I, I suppose this is not as interesting a story as it could have been, but it, it, it just it just edges so close to uh, uh, becoming so obvious because my geographical location, time, uh, situation, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff that uh it would be difficult but I, I can i can say that you know one of the one of the interesting things about being in glasgow of all places is that uh you know i got to spend time in the glasgow royal infirmary which is an incredibly historic place uh, for all the ups and downs I, I think one thing i cannot uh uh take away is that the fact that that building has incredible history and stories and uh one of the wards i worked in uh, probably has one of the longest running ghost stories in NHS history. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a ghost called Archie. And uh, multiple generations of uh, nursing staff are aware of this ghost. <laughs> uh, and peculiar things happen in the room uh, that uh, the ghost is supposed to frequent. Um, and then, and then uh, one day, one of our consultants, uh, uh, after a trauma meeting, um, sort of just took us to the side and uh you know we're the the trauma meeting lecture room is sort of like in the basement area and uh he went to the back of that basement area somewhere into an area that i'd never been and you know uh, we then walk up to a, a a shuttered up door and then we open that door uh and then this broken glass panel through a, another door and then if you look through that it was a lecture theater and apparently that was a lecture theater where Lister used to give his lectures so uh you know um it was uh it was uh, pretty cool pretty amazing and it almost looked like it was untouched um it's uh it, it was crazy uh so you know little so so, so if, you, if many of you don't know so joseph lister was you know a, a british surgeon around victorian times uh, he was basically seen as the father of surgery because he pioneered uh, antiseptic uh, surgery and uh, 
preventative medicine, uh, but but more so sterilization is the thing that uh, you know really set him apart. And uh, due to that, his outcomes changed. And he he was in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. Um, so there's there's many little small uh, quirks like this. And you know I suppose like not just patient encounters. These things are what I'll stand out with. And and the population uh, that I uh, dealt with and. You know, there's all these stereotypes that certain parts of Glasgow had, and some of them, some of them were shockingly uh, close to what they were. Uh, um, and you know, you got to see an incredible variety of things like um, soft tissue problems and uh, um, people that uh, uh, have uh, injection site issues and uh, things that I would have not very often seen um, um, anywhere else in the UK and managing those uh, kind of patient populations and understanding them and uh, communicating with them in an effective way where you know, you're trying to help them understand uh, what it is that's going on. All of these things um, are super important. And uh, I think um, I, will, you know, I will carry some of these stories with me for a long time. Absolutely. Well, that's a lovely note to, to end it on. And thank you for coming on the, the Surgical Society podcast and, and giving us, you, you know, the honest sort of reflections of, of the surgical training pathways. It's uh, been fantastic to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you so much, Frank, for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I was joined by Dr. Joya, who shared his honest reflections on the surgical training pathway. Next week, please join me where I will be speaking to Ailey Garrett, the founder of the Liverpool NHS Bursary.